Hey, I don't know about you, but I'm ready for a podcast. I feel like it's been a minute. It's time for another show. And when it comes to talking about music, I'm going hungry. Sorry, that was terrible. I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. I am who I am. If you're new to the show, yes, that's the kind of nonsense that you can expect from a host like this guy right here. But if you're listening to this show, then you saw the title of the episode, you know the album I'm talking about, and I feel like it's the perfect time. It just came to me today, like, I've got to do this album, I've got to do this super group, this iconic uh, moment in time that came out. I hadn't talked about it yet. Yes, I've talked about some of the uh, artists that are in this band and different bands, but there really was uh, nothing quite like this at the time, so it's time for me to talk about it. So let's get into it. Let's get into this album. It's time to talk about Temple of the Dog. Let's go. Things are going to change. I feel it. If this going to be that kind of fun, it will Yes, 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 there is a temple, and it is. it does have a dog, maybe two, maybe three, maybe four, and it's uh, absolutely one of the bands that dictated why I have a 90s cover band now, and our, our silly name, which I will get into in just a second, but before we get into that, I got to tell you about DistroKid. DistroKid is the service that you should be using, and if you listen to this podcast, and you click on the link that I put in the description of the show, and I put it in all my social media, if you're on my profile, there's this thing called a link tree. You click on it, it takes you to 30% off your first year of DistroKid. It's my personal link, distrokid.com slash VIP slash waterproof. If you use DistroKid, you can upload all your music and get it on every streaming platform and YouTube and all sorts of amazing stuff like that. So if you haven't checked out YouTube now, I mean, YouTube, of course you've checked out YouTube. If you haven't checked out DistroKid, then now's the time to do it and definitely take advantage of that 30% off. I use it and you should use it too. There. I'm getting good at this. I'm getting good. I mean, episode 54, you'd think after this amount of time, I'd have the district kid spiel down. I'm getting better at it, at knowing what to say off the top of my head. But I'm excited to talk about this album. And like I said, it was one of those moments that I was like, oh, I could talk about this because a lot of exciting things have happened recently. Um, I've made videos about this, but I haven't talked about it on the podcast. The last episode was Jane's Addiction, um, and I, I can't even remember what I did before that. But something big happened at the end of January that I was unable to talk about until uh, I think it was February 13th was the date that I was able to talk about it. If you haven't seen that video from me, there was a very exciting special private listening event for the new Pearl Jam album Dark Matter and I got invited to go yes it was such an honor it was such a cool experience and uh, I just felt so incredibly fortunate to be invited along for this this event it happened during the week of the Grammys so a lot of people from record labels and and from the music industry were in town so they timed it I think very well for that so that those people could come but uh, amongst all those people they invited this guy and I was like hey that's pretty freaking amazing. And people have asked me, they said like, how did you get that? How did you get that? Um, I got to be honest. This is my moment where I'm going to tell you 
uh, put good things out in the world, believe that good things can happen, and I believe that they can happen. It doesn't always go that way. I just recently got myself out of a, a yet another kind of funk of depression, which I have those often. But I'll tell you, and I've, I've said it on the show before, I remember when I made my earliest TikToks and I was getting comments from the Metallica TikTok or the Smashing Pumpkins TikTok or the Cigarettes TikTok, I was getting comments and I was so excited about it and I made a video about it and somebody's response on there that they made, they even like stitched or duetted me and they were like, somebody gonna break it to this guy that he's not interacting with these actual bands. And it was that outlook and then the comments are like, yeah, psh. Yeah, right. Like you're really talking to these people. And I know, I know. But I'm, I'm reminding you of that story um, about that anecdote because I knew that I was talking to probably a social media person. But I think that if you just embrace, move forward, step in to be excited by and not have this kind of um, ang- like this lens of everything like, like it's probably not. It's probably never. It's probably never going to happen. I just don't know if that's ever going to really guide a lot of good opportunities your way. I think you just believe that you're trying to put good things out in the world and people will notice. And if they don't notice, it doesn't matter because you are just you're sharing. Um, you're just trying to make the world a better place. Right. So that being said, I made these videos and eventually they led their way to people who work with Pearl Jam closely, very closely, like right in the inner circle of the team. I'm not saying members of the band, but I'm saying people who work with the band and they reached out and they said, love your videos. And I think it would be great if you came to this listening party. So that's what I was telling you right there is that I got to go to this because I just kept doing what I'm doing. I just kept doing what I'm doing. I'm putting it out there. Um, I'm not some, you know, superior music uh, like critic or or somebody who's works in the music industry his whole life and really has all this clout and whatever. But I have the tendency to make people smile and laugh, and it's it's struck a chord enough that a lot of my heroes as a child have have found me, reached out to me and said, we really enjoy it. I get a chance to interact with them. And this was one of those opportunities. I got to go to the Dark Matter listening party. So let me break that down for you real quick. Um, it was held at a very, I think I can talk about it now because it was in Spin Magazine. It was in Rolling Stone. At the time, it was very hush-hush. I was not allowed to say where I was going. I was not allowed to say uh, anything about the event. And even when I was there and I talked to my connection, um, they said, like, don't say anything about this. Um, You know, I don't even want you to hint that you're going to a a listening party. You could say that you're going to go to this event of a band that you like. But I had to keep it vague. So I just decided to keep all of that off of videos or social media um, until I was clear. So I can tell you now that it was at the Troubadour, which is a very famous Los Angeles music venue that's in you know West Hollywood, right on the edge there by Beverly Hills. And this music venue is small. I've seen tons of shows in this location. Um, I saw a big wreck in December earlier and last year I saw the hives there. Um, back in the day, I went and saw my cousin, my buddy John Walker in the young veins play there. I'm pretty sure that's where I saw further seems forever back in the early two thousands. Um, but it's a very small venue. It's not large at all. So we get invited to go there and right outside the front door when I arrive, it's during the day and they have you put your phones in these little locked bags. 
So no pictures, no video, which is a good thing, right? Um, it was a good lesson in just kind of like not being focused on that, but just being lost in the experience. But they, they put the phones in these bags and then you could hold on to it. And I think that was the toughest part was it would be in my pocket and I could feel the, you know, a text or somebody trying to contact me, but I couldn't check it. So that it was a little anxiety inducing. I kind of wish I had thought to just shut it off and then put it in the bag. So I wouldn't even think about it next time. But we go in and there's a lot of people already there milling around in this space. And uh, I saw some familiar faces, some people that I, I really uh, enjoy and work in music. And we're talking, we're chatting. You could go to the bar, you could get a drink. But I make my way to the front of the stage and I'm star- standing near the edge of the stage because I just keep thinking to myself, I'm like, everybody's talking to each other. They're socializing and up on the big screen, they've got the what you've now seen is the art from the cover of Dark Matter and it keeps moving and there's this kind of like rumbling bass, the sound playing. And, um, you know, we're standing there and I just kind of am slowly making my way to the front of stage because I keep thinking to myself, I'm like, well, if Pearl Jam is here, if they're coming out, then I want to be as close as possible. So I make my way there. I'm not cutting anybody off. This really nice tall guy in front of me was like, hey, you want to stand in front of me? I'm used to always, you know, being this tall, blocking people. So get in front of me, which was very kind, sir, whoever you were. Um, and then I stood right there at the edge of the stage and some, um, ladies to my right, they were on, on the edge of the stage, a gentleman, you know, so they, uh, the couple people who work with the label and, and, uh, higher end, the executives come out, make say a few words. And then they're like, and now here comes the band and out walks Eddie Vedder, Mike McCready, Jeff Ament. And Andrew Watt, who's the producer of the new album. So there was no Stone Gossard and there was no Matt Cameron. When I made my video, people were like, you didn't mention Stone or you didn't mention Matt. And I was like, because they weren't there. These were the only members of the band there. But still, I was kind of shocked because I'm standing here and I'm, I'm 10, 15 feet away from Eddie Vedder and Jeff Ament and Mike McCready and Andrew Watt. And these those those three faces, I'm like, man, the amount of times I saw those faces on MTV and in music videos. And I've shockingly never seen Pearl Jam live. I've never seen them play live. I've never had the opportunity to go. And I feel very fortunate because it looks like I'm going to get to go see them in May for this tour. But they come out. um, Eddie Vedder says a, a bunch of words about you know, how excited he was to work on this album. He gives some cool um, comparisons to like surfing and rip curls. And, you know, he talks about the experience and their excitement and motivation to record this music and the, the positive experience of working with Andrew and how they started out in this one uh, studio and then it got flooded and then they had to move over to Rick Rubin's Shangri-La to finish it. And um, just a lot of cool little stories. And they've offered up, you know, little beers and things like that. And Eddie gets up and he says this funny thing about every time he uh, shows this album to a friend or somebody he's excited to share it with, they end up pouring drinks. And by the end of it, they're like, you know, schnocker just because they've been drinking this whole album. Um, and he's like, he's holding one of those mini Corona bottles. And he's like, I guess that's why they gave me the the little ones, you know, whatever. And he's like, either that or it makes me look like I'm a giant. Uh, which was really funny. Everybody got a, a good laugh and he had that, you know, he had that smirk on his face. I know a lot of you listen, but he had that like curled lip and the kind of raised eyebrows squinting, you know, look like just exactly as I remembered him. And you got a sense that he had some family there. He had a daughter there and um, he was just really excited to, to show the album. So then they start it 
and the first song starts to play and you can see the band is up there tucked away on the stage and it, within minutes Eddie Vedder jumps down off the stage to stand with us because he you can tell he wants to experience it where we're experiencing it. He wants to hear the speakers and the sound and he wants this experience with us. And also he knew that where he was standing, you're not going to be able to hear it the right way. So he's going to come down there. So he's two feet away from me. He's right to my left. There's one other guy between us who's kind of a little bit behind me and a little bit to the side of, of Eddie. And, uh, and I was like, I can't believe this is happening. We're listening to the album and I can tell you this, you know, I don't want to spoil too much for you, but it, it, it is a lot more rocking than I thought it would be. There were a lot more like really driving tunes on there and I was enjoying myself and people have said like, what do you think of this album? And I'm, I'm, I'm telling you right now, I don't think in my brain I could have not enjoyed everything that was happening because I'm looking to my left and I'm listening to Dark Matter with Eddie Vedder. What do you want from me? I'm having a great time. Literally four songs in, he grabs a beer, hands it to the guy to the left of me. He cracks another beer and he offers me. And then I realize I'm like, I'm standing right next to this lady. And I'm like, I don't want to be rude, you know, because I was like, I, she, I want her to have the opportunity first. So I, I just kind of gesture like, oh, no, like she can have it. And he hands it to her. And I immediately I'm like, I just blew it. I just blew it. I look like I turned down a beer from any better. <laughs> so I'm sitting there. I'm like, please, I hope he, he I hope I get another chance at this. And sure enough, we're listening to the first side of the album, really enjoying it, really enjoying it. And then he says, and then when side two. So I thought this was funny. He was treating it like almost like a, an album record where you turn it from side one to side two. He stopped. They went up on stage, said, is everybody having a good time so far? Um, he brought out some tequila and he's given people in the crowd shots of tequila. And then we start the album. He, he does say that on the second side, there's this, this song that he wrote, um, about his daughter about, you know, and, uh, and it was really, it was something that meant a lot to him. So I knew that that was coming. So he comes back down, we're listening to the album some more. And then he, he, uh, he does the beer thing again. He offers the guy to my left. And of course the guy to my left is just like, yeah, you know, he, he knows what's up because he's the closest. He's literally touching shoulders with Eddie. And he's like, don't say no to beers like this asshole, Jacob to my right. No, I'm just kidding. So he, so he does that. And then he offers to the lady again first, but she's not done with her drink yet. So she says, oh, I'm okay. And then he looks at me. And I give the nod like, yes. And he gives me the beer. So this was the moment I'm drinking a beer, this mini Corona uh, that Eddie Vedder handed me. And we're continuing to listen to the album. It does get to the song about his daughter. And you can tell because she's standing with him that he is genuinely very moved and emotional by this piece of music. And so is she. She's, you know, petting his back and kind of leaning against him and, he kind of looks at me, you know, he's got this smile and he looked at me many times as we listened to the album and he, uh, he's kind of got this little, this little proud grin on his face. And right as the song wraps up, I just kind of looked at him and I was like, now that's a song from a father to their daughter. And he just kind of gave me this like nod and smile. And I was like, well, there it is. That was a wonderful moment. That was a wonderful, wonderful moment. So we had that experience and uh, we finished out the album and I really enjoyed it. I'm excited to give it another listen when it releases without that heightened situation. Um, but when I was there, I was like, I'm really enjoying this. I'm enjoying the production. I'm enjoying the solos. The drum work is phenomenal. 
to be expected from Matt Cameron. Genius. Um, I was like, this is, I'm having, I'm really enjoying the experience of this album. Um, but again, if you get it and you go like, I didn't like it at all. And Jacob Givens is crazy. It's like, well, Hey, that's your experience of the album. Again, music, music is subjective. I have a feeling that dark matter is always going to be of great importance to me because how I first heard it. Are you kidding me? That would be like, you know, any of my favorite bands just saying, Hey, come listen to our new album with us. It's going to be meaningful. So I know I spent a, a little bit of extra time on the story about Pearl Jam and Dark Matter, but I, I thought for you, for my listeners, you might want to know more detail about that event. Um, if if uh, if you tuned in only for Temple of the Dog and you were like, I didn't expect such a long Pearl Jam story, but that's why I wanted to do this album because it really does tie back. I've done 10 Pearl Jam's 10. I've done um, Soundgarden's um Jeez, what album? Oh, Super Unknown. I've done those albums. And I'll probably do more Pearl Jam albums and more Soundgarden albums. But here you've got this magic moment in time. This al- album comes out April 15th, 1991. April 15th, 1991 is when this album releases. But it's not when it takes off. And if you've followed my content for a while, you know that I made a Hunger Strike video. I made a video about the experience of seeing Hunger Strike for the first time, and that was in 1992 for me. And for the most, the majority of us, that's how we heard Hunger Strike, was much later than when this album released or when this song was available. And I want to make that a very uh, particular point that I focus on because when I released the video about hearing Hunger Strike for the first time, I had a lot of people in comments. I had people on Facebook Pearl Jam groups getting really up in arms about this album came out in 1991. And they were so incensed that I was I was talking about how I'm watching the video and I'm like, hey, that's the guy from Pearl Jam and that's the guy from Soundgarden. They're like, those Pearl Jam didn't even exist when Temple of the Dog came out. Didn't even exist. That's their that's their reaction. And I must have, this was in the early days of TikTok where I felt like I had to answer every comment. I must have had the same block of text on that first video that I cut and pasted over and over again. And I wanted to say, it's 1992, the internet doesn't exist yet, and the only way we hear about a lot of these songs and bands is through MTV or the radio. I really drive that point home because here's the crazy thing. This album, yeah, it released before Pearl Jam was even a band. But when it released, it sold 70,000 copies. It did not chart. It was not a hit. I looked up how many people were in the city of Seattle in the year 1991, and there were half a million, 500,000 people. And how many of those were teenagers under the age of 18? About 15%. So that's about 75,000. So if Every teenager in Seattle bought Temple of the Dog. Okay, that's possible. But the rest of the country, if you were not plugged into the Seattle scene or the music scene that was going on at the time, you did not know about this project or this band or what it was about. But what happened was Pearl Jam releases 10. Soundgarden is getting more success. The record label goes, oh my God, we have this unbelievable super group on our hands. Let's re-release, 
Let's push this video for a hunger strike. Let's put it in the rotation. And then that happens in 1992. And so that's when the world is like, look, that's why I made the, the Reese's peanut butter cup comparison of the, you've got Soundgarden in my Pearl Jam and Pearl Jam in my Soundgarden. Cause that's how I saw it. And I know that for 95% of teenagers during this time, that's how we experienced it. If you were one of the 5% that knew beforehand, good for you. Good for you for having your ear to the ground. But I, when people were saying to me, like, that's not even how it happened. I'm like, really? You tell me your age right now. You tell me how old you were, what year you were born. And you tell me if you were my age, if you were 13 years old when this was happening. Because that's how the majority of us experienced it. Anyway, so how did this project come together? How did Temple of the Dog come to be? Temple of the Dog came together, sadly, because the lead singer of uh, Mother Love Bone died. Andrew Wood, legendary. He was in these bands in Seattle, Malfunction and Mother Love Bone, which are excellent bands. He was very talented and clearly he was loved. I have talked about how Jerry Cantrell's lyrics on Wood are about Andrew Wood. And then here we've got, you know, Chris Cornell, who was living with Andrew Wood at the time, roommates, when he died, when Andrew died of a heroin overdose, it devastated Chris, but he was going on tour with Soundgarden. He was touring. He was away from home and he's just grieving the loss of his friend. He doesn't know what to do. And he starts writing songs and right away he writes his songs, say hello to heaven, hello to heaven and reach down. Those are the songs that he writes. And this isn't the first time that Chris Cornell has been writing his own music. He's been writing his own music while he's been in Soundgarden, but oftentimes it doesn't match the sensibilities, the heaviness of Soundgarden. He's got this style that we would then know to be very commonplace for Chris Cornell's style. But at the time he was only the front man of Soundgarden. So we knew him as this heavy metal screeching guy. We didn't know him as this, folksy, bluesy, um, you know, we just didn't know his range of, of a uh, vocal talent that he was, but this is where he begins to show that this is where he begins to show that ability. So he writes these two pieces of music and he's like, <clears throat> I need to, when I get home, I need to record these cause he's out on the road. He doesn't have any buddy around him. That's close with Andrew to, to talk to. But he gets in his head. He's like, when I get back, I need to record him. And his first thought is, I'll just release, you know, hello, say hello to heaven as a single. And I'll see if Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard and maybe Matt from my own band will help me put these down, help me record these. So that's what he does. But at the time, Mother Love Bone is over, right? Andrew's gone. So you've got these former members and they're kind of disillusioned and distraught and they don't know what they're going to do. Their lead singer just died. They miss him, but they also just, they're like, what, what are we going to do as a band? So they're trying to figure it out. And this is where the beginnings of Pearl Jam are, are coming together. We've got Stone Gossard, Mike McCready, um, Jeff Ament, and they've hired Eddie Vedder to fly out to Seattle. Well, I don't know even if hired, he's just coming out to kind of, possibly be the singer of this new band, this new band that they're going to call Mookie Blaylock named after the basketball player. So that's the plan. And, uh, what happens is Chris Cornell, Jeff Ament, 
the newly added Mike McCready to this lineup and Stone Gossard and Matt Cameron start recording these songs and writing these songs and taking some of the old songs that they'd written with Andrew and things that they hadn't worked out before. And they're just, it's very good. It's very cathartic. It's helping them process their friend's death. And they've gone on years later to say it was one of the best times because they had no label, no pressure. They're in the studio. They record the whole thing in 15 days in November to December of 1990. And it's, it's produced by Rick Parashar and Rick Parashar is a legendary record producer who helped produce so many of these, those albums during that time. And he passed away at the uh, age of 50, sadly in 2014, but he's helping him produce it. And it's just a feel good time a healing time for these guys to get together and sing and write these songs. Chris already had say hello to heaven and reach down ready to go. And that's where the album starts. I say hello to heaven is, is one of the strongest songs on the album. In my opinion, Uh, it was definitely one that I listened to repeatedly, not just because it's the opening track, but it really is powerful. And I read an interesting thing about say hello to heaven. Someone wrote as a, you know, a fact about the song you didn't know is that it is the highest recorded note that Chris Cornell ever sang. But I'm here to say, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. You, if you are a Chris Cornell expert, you could come back on this, but you can listen to this say hello to heaven. And he does get unbelievably high at the end of the song. But I was thinking in my head, I don't have perfect pitch, but I was thinking, I feel like the notes on birth ritual are higher than this. I'm not 100% sure. And by all means, if you are somebody who knows every pitch, every note that Chris Cornell ever sang, and they're right that it was on Say Hello to Heaven, then okay, I will accept my defeat and then I'm wrong. But when I read that fact, I was like, it's high, but I feel like Chris Cornell could get that that pitch to the stratosphere he could go so high and i feel like i can hear him in my head at say hello to heaven and i am like i feel like i've heard notes higher than that but again i could be wrong and and if you know better than me then then hit me in the comments (laughs) you you would anyway even if i didn't ask you to but say hello to heaven incredible song really kicks off just the the vibe and the energy of the album and where we're headed And then you go to uh, right after that, you get to reach down, which is a long song, you know, over 11 minutes, just jamming. Um, You know, this is really where you can see that they had the freedom, right? There's no label that's saying what they have to do on this album. So if they want to just go on that song, reach down 11 minutes, um, I can can honestly say that I feel like that might have been one of those songs that I just, you know, kind of once they were getting deeper and deeper into the instrumentals of that, that I may have just kind of tuned out, you know, not that it's a bad song, but we land on hunger strike, which is next. And this is the, this is the one that everybody knows. And this is, this is the most famous song that temple of the dog ever released is this supergroup hunger strike. And the whole point of that video that I made, which is it was the quintessential singing around the campfire song with two friends, whoever it is, one person wanted to do the Eddie Vedder part. One po- person wanted to do the Chris Cornell part. And that's, that's, that was like the tradition. And, um, I really, really believe that it was such a unifying thing. I remember before my TikToks and Instagrams, I remember just saying that joke to people being like, yeah, if we get a campfire, somebody's going to do hunger strike or whatever. And, and it would always get kind of this laugh amongst 
um, our generation is like, it was, it's the campfire song. You know, we had things like closer to fine by the indigo girls and, and definitely hunger strike. Um, but I remember seeing this video and an interesting story about this video is when they were filming it, there was a little bit of a disagreement because, um, Cornell and I believe Cameron, Matt Cameron and, and Chris Cornell didn't want to do any footage of them in the video. They wanted to make it very cinema esque, make it a little bit more abstract and focus on the fact that, um, this project was for Andrew Wood. It was, that's why they're together. <clears throat> they didn't want to take the focus. But meanwhile, the Pearl Jam camp is like, hey, we're about to, you know, try to start a new band. We could use all the exposure we can get. And I think it would be good if we're in this video. And so they they came to agree. They they would go to that outdoor area, you know, the grass, the beach. If you've seen the video, you know it. It's very symbolic of of the Seattle scene. It's a very specific location that you see it and you go, that's Seattle. And that's why they chose it. They wanted it to have that heart of the city. And it does. It absolutely has it. Um, so it was incredible. It was a great video. It really captivated. And, and, and I remember loving it also seeing these two incredible vocalists at the time singing together. Because like I said, I knew that's Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam. That's Chris Cornell from Soundgarden. And they're singing together and it's outside and it's in nature and then it gets dark and there's... You know, it's good. That's that's the feel of the video. And so when I shot the video that I did, I was on a camping trip and I was like, that's what I got to do. I got to shoot it when I'm on this camping trip. <clears throat> Funny side story, though. If you watch the video, I went on this camping trip and the idea was I'm going to film it around the campfire on the camping trip. So I get this standing shots and the flannels and the hats. And uh, and on this specific camping trip, we show up to the camping grounds. And they're like, no fires. And we're like, what? And they're like, we've had a lot of burn problems, you know, the the fire problems in California. So we're doing a, a ban on any campfires this weekend. That's a, It's a thing in California where we have dry seasons and it's dangerous. But usually campgrounds are okay because they've got them isolated. It's not like a free burn. It's in these pits and whatnot. But they were like, yeah, sorry, we're just not taking any chances. So we couldn't have a fire. So we were on this camping trip and I was like, damn it. I can't get that amazing shot. So I decide when I go home from the trip, I'll just get it in a fire pit in my backyard on the outdoor concrete. And we have this shade that's overhead, like, a you know, the shades that you can put across so that you can block out the sun during certain seasons. We can fold it back. We can bring it forward. But I'm outside in my backyard with this fire pit. And what we do is we fold back the shade Um from the fire pit so that it can, it, the smoke can go directly up. But what I don't realize is as I'm filming this sequence going around, around the fire pit is that the way that this folded back shade looks like it looks like a ceiling of a room. And I can't tell you how many people on that video were like, did you film this fire inside your house? And I was like, no, <laughs> no, I'm not an idiot. They thought I was filming a out like a fire pit inside my living room, but it was just the the illusion of that outdoor shade. I was absolutely outside, so I hope you weren't worried. Um, but uh, but yeah, that that video. I wanted to have that outdoor earthy campfire feel. I wanted to tip a hat to the music video of being outside, but I wanted to tip a hat to being around a campfire, and that's why I did that rotating shot going back and forth on each side. But Hunger Strike, you know, we are I, I I am now in this cover band, Temple of the Dads, 
and I know that's silly, but that's that we had to have a, a hint of humor in there because I think that when you are my age, you're from my generation and you're in a cover band, I want to be good. I want to be a great band with a lot of passion, but I also want everybody to know that we do realize that we're hearkening back to our younger days and it's okay. So there's got to be a lightheartedness to it. And every member of the band is a dad, including myself. So we thought Temple of the Dads was great. Apparently, there was a band before us called Temple of the Dad, but they quit uh, playing together like five years before. I didn't know that until well after we had already become a band. But we're now the Temple of the Dads, and that's all there is to it. We just played this past weekend, and we're playing this uh, Friday night. So we're getting a lot more shows. So if you live in the L.A. area, make sure you're following us on um, Temple of the Dads on Instagram at Temple of the Dads. And we're working on getting some other places out there. But, you know, as of right now, just playing Los Angeles just because, you know, hey, we're not making a ton of money to tour the world as a cover band. But back to the album. Then we, after Hunger Strike, we get to Pushing Forward Back. Love that song. That's another one of my favorite songs of the album. Really, really driving, really good. Um, amazing song. Call Me a Dog is, uh, I believe, Chris Cornell wrote about his wife at the time, uh, no longer with, but she was helped managing the band. And uh, her name was Susan Silver. And he was, you know, the, the lyrics were about problems they had before getting married. Um, and then after that, you get to Times of Trouble, which interestingly enough, that guitar part, if I'm not mistaken, was written by Stone Gossard. And he went ahead and used it on this album for times of trouble. Great. But that very same guitar part is used in the Pearl Jam song, uh, footsteps, which you would first hear on the Jeremy single. It was a B side on the Jeremy single. And then it was later put on a compilation, um, lost dogs. And that was something that, uh, you can hear the guitar parts, but you hear how Chris Cornell does his vocals and how Eddie Vedder, does his vocals um, differently and writes the song totally differently. So I think it's a fascinating thing to listen to times of trouble on this and, uh, and then go listen to footsteps by Pearl jam. Oh, before I move forward too much, I, I, I don't think I spent any time. If you didn't know about how, how did Eddie Vedder end up singing on hunger strike? I'm sorry. I moved forward on that. If you didn't know he's traveled into town, they're recording, um, you know, the, Temple of the Dog music in the studio and Chris Cornell's having a hard time kind of laying down the vocals the way he wants for Hunger Strike and Eddie Vedder just steps in and sings the parts for him and he sings those parts and and Chris hears it and he's like that's exactly what I wanted in there that's what I wanted so Eddie isn't a, a well-known singer yet he's not in Pearl Jam as of yet I mean it's just getting off the ground it's not really a thing yet so he's just given this opportunity to sing on this song with Chris Cornell and he does some other backing vocals on the song, but it was just one of those situations where he's the right place, the right time gets added on the recording. It's only later that it is of so much significance that these two are duetting on the song. Anyway, I didn't mean to jump around there. Then we get to uh, wooden Jesus. Um, you know, these were wooden Jesus uh, was one of those songs. I think that when I was a little Christian kid, I was probably nervous that just, just, merely by having the name Jesus in the song title, I might get in trouble for it. So I don't know if I spent that much time on it. And this is another one of those albums where you get to the end. It was, it was a little jammy, you know, again, I talked about no pressure to have a bunch of hits on this album. So you get to your savior, your savior for walled world and all night thing, all night thing is kind of this like, 
oof, you know, uh, Chris Cornell just getting very soulful and kind of slows everything down. Four Walled World has that. Uh, ha- there's definitely the sounds of kind of Stones guitar work from Ten on there. That brush, you know, that I don't know how to put it into words. It's like a it's like a wash, um, a washy guitar on Four Walled World. Um, and then, yeah, there's, you know, I don't, I don't have anecdotes on every single, uh, song on this album. It's just, it just brings me back to the experience of hearing temple of the dog. And I remember even thinking to myself that that name, um, was a funny name. You know, when they, when you heard, when you saw the video and you're like temple of the dog. And if you've ever wondered what that is, that is a song lyric from a mother love bone song, which is called man of golden words. Um, Andrew Wood says it like within the first few lines of the song, he says temple of the dog. And so they took the name, uh, of the band was from that song from mother love bone. And that's how they named the band. But that's, I, you know, I feel like I probably spent more time on the Pearl jam story than I did on temple of the dog. Um, but you know, this is a, this is a very important album for the time. It was a big deal. Um, in 1991, like I said, it didn't get the reception that it deserved, but then it would get it later and then it would become an absolute landmark because they, there's no other temple of the dog album. They re re-released it in 2016, I think. And I think, uh, Brendan O'Brien producer, Brendan O'Brien did a remix a remastering of it with a bunch of outtakes and demos and live versions that you could get. But this is the one moment in time that we get these um, people together to make music and you know Chris Cornell just shows the world that he's the front man of this kick-ass band Soundgarden but look I can write and sing and I can play harmonica and banjo he plays harmonica on times of trouble and he plays banjo and wooden Jesus so just the guy's got so many skills and abilities and and you know RIP what a what a what an unbelievable talent gone too soon um, but that is temple of the dog. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, yeah, it brings me back to that time. I still remember having that. Um, I believe I had it on cassette. I don't think I had a CD player yet when I had my first copy of temple of the dog. I wonder if I still have that. I might have it somewhere, but that's been waterproof records. I hope you had a good time. Um, and I always enjoy talking about albums. I've got some guests. I've been talking to some people that are going to be coming on the show soon. And I'm so excited about that. Um, I'm excited to have some conversations with some other people. And, uh, cause I feel like I've been, it's just been Jacob back to back to back to back on the show. Um, but I had a lot of fun and thanks for tuning in again. Um, if you've wondered what this beautiful Vilumi is to my right, this is this awesome display where you can put your vinyl records and it has a light. It's a cool thing. Um, make sure you're checking out DistroKid, DistroKid slash uh, DistroKid.com slash VIP slash waterproof. Get that 30% off. And then I hope you're following and sharing this podcast with other people. I hope you're subscribed. Um, you can find me on all the social media, you know, Jacob Givens on Instagram, the Jacob Givens on TikTok. Um, I have a Facebook, I have a YouTube, I have one on each of those places, right? If you're getting messages from somebody who says that they are the real Jacob Givens and this is my side account, that is bullshit. Never, never trust that person that is a scammer. I don't have any other accounts. Um, but uh, but make sure you're letting people know about this show. I hope you're sharing it. I hope it brings you some joy. 
and I do love doing it. I couldn't do it without you. So thank you so much for your support. We'll see you next time on Waterproof Records. Waterproof Records. Waterproof Records.